0: Amen. Amen. We are going to continue our series on vision. We're going to finish it up. Three weeks on vision. And so this is the last one. The next week we're going to start a new series called TASKED. And uh, that's T-A-S-K-E-D. TASKED. And what that is, is it's a play on like uh, Mission Impossible or like the different Uh, spy shows you might watch and that sort of thing. And, you know, they get this thing, you know, this communique, you know, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is whatever. And then they say, I've been tasked to do this particular thing. And so as believers, we are in that position. We have been tasked by God to do particular things. And so we need to know what is our purpose? What is our mission? What did the scriptures say we are here to do? And so we're going to take a survey of scriptural things that we've been tasked to do as a New Testament church. So that's going to start next week. But this week we're going to finish up our vision series. And so let's do some recap. We got a vision statement and the people at Good Hope Church know the vision statement. It's an amazing thing. Most of the time the pastor doesn't even know the vision statement. So here's the deal. Vision statement is reach up Rise up, reach out. I made you do the hand motions, and this is the 9 o'clock. You guys are all going to watch football, I suppose, at noon. you got to make sure you're out of here in time. Let's do the hand motions, loosen up a little bit. You ready? Little, little uh, shoulder movements, you know, that sort of thing. Here we go. So we're going to do reach up and rise up and reach out. Hallelujah. Very good. So the idea is we want to reach up. We want to connect with God. We want to connect with God in worship. We want to connect with God in prayer. We want to connect with God by even studying the scriptures and getting to know more about the Lord. And this happens uh, not just once, but it's a lifestyle of being connected with God, of abiding in the vine. And so if we're separated from God, we know the blood of Christ is sufficient to take our sins away. We can stand in His righteousness and be reconnected with God, a child of God, a co-heir with Christ, and then we continue that life of connecting with God, of reaching up through our entire uh, Christian life. And then rise up. And that is that if you do make a connection with God, it's going to change you. It's going to make you better. It's going to start fixing things on the inside. As the Holy Spirit of God intermingles with our own spirit. Our spirit yields to the Holy Spirit. And we go from being a mean person to being a nice person. You know, we go from somebody who doesn't have time for someone that we think is beneath us to someone who cares about all of humanity. We start to agree with the Spirit of God in our own spirit and things start to change. That's rise up. Rise up out of the junk that's been pulling us down. There's so many chains and bondages and problems in the spirit realm and in the physic re- physical realm that hold us down. We rise up out of that into who God's called us to be. And then at that point, we're suitable to be ambassadors for Christ to reach out. To make a difference in this world for the kingdom of God. So we want to reach up, rise up, reach out. We talked about the theology of the body of Christ, which was very exciting. And that is this, that there is one body in many parts. Have you read that in the Bible? One body, many parts. What does that mean? It means that there's one body. How many? One. And that there are many parts. And these parts can be individual people, like you and me. We serve our individual role. And then there are groups of people, like inside the church even, like a worship team, a prayer team, children's ministry teams. We have these groups of people. And then there are larger groups of people that are still part of the one body, like Good Hope Church, and Journey Christian Church, and Grace Church, and other organizations like Crew, and Young Life, and the Gideons, all working together, many parts, one body. That's the theology of the body of Christ we covered a couple weeks ago. Then last week we talked about Part of our vision is growth. We want to grow. We want to grow both individually, spiritually, and we want to grow numerically. Is that okay to want to grow numerically? Yes, it's perfectly fine. I was talking to a pastor a couple weeks ago, and he said, Well, I'm not here to build a big church. I'm like, Well, what's wrong with you? Don't you want to reach people? Aren't there like thousands of people that need to be saved within a few miles of where you are? Why wouldn't you want them to come to church and and be connected with God and, and be growing in their faith? Why would you want them not to come? That makes no sense to me. But I think this is what people like that are talking about. There are ways that growth is not good. We talked about that last week. The first way is false growth. If you're doing something in order to grow the church, but it does not grow the kingdom of God, that's false growth. And that can be icky stuff. You know, it can be, uh, you know, it can be just off. It's just not what we're here for. We want to reach up. We want to rise up. We want to reach out. We don't want to have the most entertaining service. You know, I could tell, I like to make this sermon worth listening to. And hopefully it's fun. Maybe you laugh a little bit. You know, maybe at the end, it's, it's more meaningful and touching. That's what I'm going for. Uh, but if you think, wow, that guy's really funny. That church is great. He's so funny. Have we missed something? Oh, that's not what it's about, is it? It can't be about that. If that's what it's about, we've got a serious problem. And so it's not a comedian trying to gain a following. It's about a group of people coming together to worship the living God. And so if more people come together to worship the living God, then that's real growth. If people come together to listen to something funny, that's false growth. And so what we want is we want real growth. False growth leaves a bad taste in a good Christian's mouth. They can, they can taste it. It's icky. And then we talked about lost connection and how if a church grows, you can end up sort of getting lost in the crowd if it grows enough. And, and that's no fun, is it? And that's a legitimate need, is to be part of what's going on, and to not get lost in the crowd. We looked at a New Testament example of people getting lost in the crowd. The widows of the Greek Jews were being forgotten in their food distribution program. The New Testament church, by Acts chapter 6, had a very extensive food distribution program for the poor. And they would feed the poor who belonged to the church. They were nice to help the poor otherwise too, but that was special individual situations. But they had a responsibility, they felt, to take care of the poor inside the church. And so they would have a list of widows and they would feed them. But the Greek widows were being forgotten because so many people were involved that people were slipping through the cracks and the Greeks were kind of on the outside compared to the Hebrews and so they got forgotten and they had to deal with that. It was a big problem in Acts chapter 6. And so, the way they solved the problem wasn't to stop growth. It was to make organizational changes in order to be able to not have people slip through the cracks. And so they added seven staff members, all of whom were Greek. Pretty effective. And then it said that the the church grew. And so, false growth, lost connection are bad ways of growing, or problems that can come associated with growth. Uh, We want to avoid that. But let's uh, let's move on to today's material. We're going to talk about the early church in the book of Acts. You know, the 120 were praying, and then the day of Pentecost happened, 3,000 people get saved, and the church continues to grow. What did they do? You know what was it like? What was what was that revival like to experience? What did they do? You know, did they did they go to church every other week for an hour and then the rest of the time not really worry about it? What what did they do? How did they participate in this amazing New Testament revival? What did they do? And so that's what we're going to cover today. Uh so that we can see what they did, and try to emulate uh, how they expressed their faith in Jesus. So let's pray, and we'll get into that, uh, that new material. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your holy scriptures. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, Father, that you don't leave us down here to wander around, do the best we can, but you guide us by your spirit, and you guide us by your word. Help us to see what you've got for us. Bless our time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen, amen, amen. All right, so from last week, Acts chapter 2, 36 through 41. Let's just read that because then we're going to continue uh, from uh, 42 to 47. Acts 2, 36. So Peter is hes yelling at the crowd. He's giving them what for. He's no longer afraid. He's seen that Jesus is risen from the dead. So he's like, well... I think I'm good then. And so he's willing to tell the truth in a bold way. He says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000. Was that a good day for the church? Absolutely. Were any of the 120 that were part of the group that morning going, Oh, great. Well, now, now I'm never going to get to do the Christmas pageant. You know, I mean, it was nobody was disappointed, right? They were all excited. They were all excited. And so then what happened? Let's go to verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship of and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. We're going to talk about those four things today. They devoted themselves, so these were devoted people. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Let's read the rest of these verses. 43, everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Hallelujah. So we see they met in the temple courts daily. They had big group revival meetings every day and people were getting saved every day. They're having church. Does that mean that in, the New Test, in, in, in today's era, in 2015, if we're going to follow the Bible, that we need to have church every day? There's a simple answer to that and it is No. We do not have to have church every day. But you know what? You might have a week of revival meetings. You might have two weeks of revival meetings. That sort of thing can happen, right? You might go to a conference. There can be these special times where you have lots and lots of church, but it doesn't mean we need to have church every day in the big group revival meeting sort of sense. Now, I think you should have devotions every day. You should be aware of God every day. You should be connecting with God every day but we don't have to do that. You guys were thinking I was going to say we need to have church. And guess what? Tomorrow we're having church too. Be here at 9 o'clock Monday morning. You're all going to have to quit your jobs and come to church every day. You don't have to do that. So, uh, you, how you doing? You doing good? Is it just early or what? <laughs> let's, so let's look at these four things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. What is that? That's basically the doctrine the doctrines of the church what do we do now when i say the word doctrine oftentimes people start getting nervous you know because what are they thinking they're thinking okay he's going to say something really bizarre that i've never heard of before and he's going to want me to agree with it and i'm not sure about that right it isn't a doctrine so let me make a difference between doctrine and theology the doctrine that's discussed in the New Testament does really, there's really very little resemblance to modern theology when the Bible talks about doctrine. And so theology can be like the 15th derivative of a thought that somebody had 300 years ago, and it's just off into some amazing place, you know, of incredible detail. And just way over there. And that's not what you see in the New Testament. That's not what you see in the early church. The doctrine, the apostles' teaching, was basically practical life skills and understanding the basics of God. Do you know, as far as theology is concerned, the early church, from what I understand, had three cardinal doctrines. And here's how complicated they were. Doctrine number one, Jesus is the Christ. Doctrine number one, you with me so far? Jesus is the Christ. That means that the Messiah has shown up. That we're no longer waiting for our rescuer from heaven to come. The rescuer has come. The Messiah is here. Jesus is the Christ. The Christ has come. So they're very excited about that. That's still true today. Doctor number two Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, hallelujah. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus conquered the grave. The grave is empty. He physically resurrected. There was no body. Jesus rose from the dead. And by implication, we can get in on that. We can have salvation. And that brings us to the third one. Salvation is through faith in Jesus' name. Those were the three cardinal doctrines. Now, of course, there was other things that they understood. But Jesus is the Christ. Jesus rose from the dead. And salvation comes by faith in His name. Is that weird, crazy theology? That's pretty basic stuff. Pretty basic stuff. And so, let's look at... Sound doctrine. An example of sound doctrine in the Bible from Titus chapter 2. Sound doctrine. Ch- Titus chapter 2 verse 1. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Does that sound good? Sound doctrine. Very important. I wonder what this sound doctrine might be. Verse 2. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, love, and in endurance. Does this look like theology? This isn't theology. This is how are you living your life? What, what is your character like? Be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and endurance. That's sound doctrine. Let's continue. Verse 3. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. Not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Sound doctrine is don't be a gossip. Sound doctrine. Verse 4. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. A lot of self-control. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech. They cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. This is all about character. Teach, teach slaves. Now, the word slave doesn't really work in our culture right now. But let me just substitute the word employee, all right? Because that's the closest situation that we've got in practical talking. Teach employees to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It includes things like Jesus is coming back. Tonight's the fourth blood moon. You know that? You know when the, well, you know when it starts? Like hits its full stride? At 9 11 tonight. Hmm. Very interesting stuff. I'm gonna I'm gonna watch it, I think. So here you have it. <laughs> anyway, so it says here, be ready for our blessed hope, the glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to come back. And so, you need to adhere to sound doctrine. That is, be temperate, self-controlled. You know, be kind, things like that. That's sound doctrine. Not these bizarre, very difficult to understand theological concepts. And so, when they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, it was, okay, how can I be temperate? I have issues with temperance. (laughs) I need to start getting better at being temperate. How can I be self-controlled? How can I be worthy of respect? Those were the things that they worked on. How to get that to happen in their life. It wasn't about adhering to the most complicated theological concept that they could grab hold of. The apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Maybe someday I'll translate the Bible. I'll have to translate it from English because I don't know all the other ones. But I can read the, I've got a computer program that tells me every word and what it means and that sort of a thing. And if I was to translate this phrase, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Because I'm like, okay, I'm not really sure exactly what that means. But here's what it means. They devoted themselves to each other. They devoted themselves to one another. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They learned the ways of God. They put into practice the things they were taught. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And they devoted themselves to each other, to one another. Now I think that's probably one of the biggest ways the New Testament church is different from today's church. In today's church, of course, we're not going to have it like that here, but in today's church, it's really more like people watching a movie. Right? They come in, they want it to be fun and, and you know, feed them whatever that means, and and just get them into that enjoyable state of having a good service, and then they don't want to really talk to anybody and they just go home. Right? They come. Watch the movie, go home. In the New Testament revival, they devoted themselves to each other. They connected. They knew they were on the same team. Have you seen the the Jesus fish? People sometimes have the Jesus fish on their car, that sort of thing. Here's the story I heard about the Jesus fish. I hear lots of things. I I wasn't there back in the New Testament times, so I'm not sure if this is exactly true, but this is what they tell me is that there was a lot of persecution. We'll see in Acts chapter 6, you know, Stephen gets stoned and there's a great persecution that breaks out and there's lots of problems and and right now they're having a great revival time, but pretty soon, you know, there's going to be this backlash. And so I heard the story of the Jesus fish is that they had to have codes to be able to figure out who's a who's a brother and who's not. And what they would do is they'd take a stick They'd draw an ark in the sand on the ground. And then if the other person just walked by, they knew they weren't a brother. But if the other person drew another arc and completed the fish, then they knew this is someone that's on my team. You know, it's like the, the little clicker. Heard of the different things. To, how do I, friend or foe, the fish draw the ark, You don't get in any trouble by just making a little swipe on the ground. The other person would finish the swipe and then you know, okay, here's my brother. We're on the same team. We can count on each other. You know, give them the wink. They devoted themselves to each other. They were connected. They cared about one another. They were one body with many parts. They didn't all know each other. There was thousands and thousands of them. And they didn't feel bad if they didn't know each other. But if they found out that somebody else was a believer, they were like, we're brothers. We're sisters. We're in it together. They understood that. Um, That means that they were loyal to one another. They devoted themselves to each other. Is loyalty a good thing? Yes. Can loyalty be a bad thing? It can be. Pretty much everything, there's ditches on both sides, right? There's the whole, like, I just do what's good for me, and if it happens to be the right thing, great. If not, fine. You know, I mean, that whole complete disloyalty, just I'm only about me. And then there can be loyalty that's, that's not good, right? And so I was trying to figure out, what's this bad loyalty? What is that like? And so I think I've got a reasonable enough definition of it, and that would be this. Bad loyalty is when someone uses your relationship as leverage to get you to do something you really know you shouldn't do. You know, like, hey man, we're brothers. I'm going to need you to do this for me. You know, you need to go slash that person's tires or what? You know, whatever. Uh, it's when the relationship and the loyalty that's built in is used as leverage. To bring people into doing the wrong things. That's bad loyalty. You know that's that you want to walk away from. Uh, has that ever happened in church circles? I think it has. Like hey we're in this group together. And I'm going to need you to tow the company line right now. You know and that's bad loyalty. But that's, that's different from what this is talking about. Of hey. Jesus loves you, then so do I. Because we're on the same team. They devoted themselves to one another. Then they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread. This is interesting. In that it was a combination of two things that we do in the modern era of Christianity. It's kind of fun. Two things sort of mixed together. It was both communion and and potluck it was communion and potluck mixed together and so what they would do is they would have a big feast and everybody would come and it would be a a meal where they celebrated the the death and resurrection of Jesus you know the body and the blood but it was a whole bunch of food and they'd have a big time together and so it was communion and potluck mixed together isn't that fun That's the breaking of bread. And it took various forms. You know, this was uh, a lot of different things were happening and it wasn't always exactly according to some specific formula. They had breaking of bread in big group settings. They had it in small group settings. It was just a very common thing. But did you know that the Apostle Paul yelled at the Corinthian church for how they did potlucks? Did Did you know that? He yelled at them for how they did their potlucks. He's like, your potlucks are no good. And let's read that in first. Because remember, the potluck and the Lord's Supper communion were blended together. So there was a holiness involved in the potluck time. It wasn't just hanging out and eating. It was, it was important. And so let's look at this. Paul yelling at the Corinthians for how they do their potlucks in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17. Oh. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Don't hold back, Paul. All right, verse 18. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. So he's saying you're having potlucks and you're not sharing with people who don't have anything. People just go ahead and eat. They don't do it together. People are drunk. This is just a big mess. So he yells at them. He said, what you're supposed to do is... Supposed to come together, supposed to share with one another. If you're super hungry, eat something at home first so you don't have to like push people out of the way and you know, and get the bean dip in front of everybody else. But eat at home so that you can have some self control and everybody can share. And hey, you know, practice temperance at your agape feasts. And so he's yelling at them, and that's where. This thing about examine yourself when you're taking communion comes. We'll skip five verses. We're going to go up to verse uh, 27. And let's read this. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. This wasn't, you know, little wafer, little cup. This was at the potluck. Recognize the body. Be kind to one another. Don't humiliate people who don't have anything. Make sure everybody gets something. Everybody gets to share. Examine yourself. So the breaking of bread was something that happened in the large group setting as described here in 1 Corinthians. And we see it in the small group setting in Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 46, that we read earlier. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. So they had the big group meetings at the temple courts. They having revival services. Woo! And they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So they had the big group meeting and they had the small group meeting. They broke bread together in their homes. They ate together. They had the Lord's Supper on a small scale with a few people in their homes. That was part of devoting themselves to one another through the breaking of bread. So big group, small group. Remember I talk about four things. This is vision, so we're going to get into some details. Four things that are important for you to be able to Maximize your Christian growth. Come to the big group meeting. Connect with people. Get involved in either an a organized small group or a disorganized small group. Doesn't really matter, you know, uh, if it's in the window or not. But get to know people. Build deeper relationships. That's vitally important. Big group, small group, individual, personal devotions with God, and serving the Lord in some capacity. If you're doing all four of those things, you'll end up growing in your faith. If you're missing some, it will cause a problem. Have you heard people say, well, I can worship God out in a tree stand by myself. Can they? Absolutely. That's the third one. That's the devotion time. That's very, very important. If you don't do that, you're in trouble. But you also need to build relationships. That's the small group thing. And you need to show up for the big group. And you need to serve the Lord in other ways. That's not the complete whole thing. Some people want to do home churches. Well, great. That's the small group. That's, we read that in Acts chapter 2. But they also met together in the temple courts and did the big group thing. So don't throw away the other pieces because you really like one of them. Big group, small group, personal devotions, and service to the Lord. Those four things are all very, very important. I'd like to see small groups. We've got a few starting on Wednesday nights. As soon as that upstairs is finished, I want to have a bunch of adult small groups in the fellowship hall. It's going to be fantastic. I'd also like to see them like at 8 o'clock on Sunday morning. Have your small group, then you come to church. You can even have your small group at 9, go to the 1030 service. Then you get close connection and big group at the same time. You only have to drive once. Isn't that fantastic? If you did your small group based on your devotions, you could get small group, devotion, and uh, big group all at the same time. If you led the small group, you could get small group, big group, devotion, and service all at the same time. Man, boom! Get her done. I, I, I like that idea. All right. And the last one is prayer. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to each other, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. Prayer is pretty straightforward. It just means to pray. It means to pray in in groups. It means to pray individually. It's prayer. Wow, we should make that happen more often. That is really sweet. Um, I'm sorry. Something shiny. My wife got me a new coffee cup. It's got, Acts, it's, it's got a scripture verse on it. Acts seventeen eighteen, 18. And uh, it's, a, it's a real quotation from the book of Acts. This is from the Bible. And it says, what is this babbler trying to say? That's, that's from the Bible. That's what it says. Best gift I've ever gotten in my life. She got me eight of them with a bunch of interesting verses on them. So I can do my devotions. So, praise God for that. Prayer. Praying individually, praying corporately. That's what that's talking about. They devoted themselves to prayer. They were people of prayer. And we at Good Hope Church want to be people of prayer. We've got the uh, October prayer and fasting coming up. Uh, I'm going to a prayer retreat with, prayer and fasting retreat with uh, Pastor Larry on Monday. Uh, we're going to be gone praying and fasting. It's going to be fantastic. I love that. When you fast, after about 24 hours, then everything slows down. And you can think clearly. I love that period of time. Because normally it's just like, you know, but it slows down. And it's a great time to hear from God. So we want to be people of prayer. If you want to pray and fast... We've got the sign-up sheet for October. We've always filled every day in October, praying and fasting. And then, should we quit praying after October is over? No. We're going to do uh, what we're calling the 365 initiative. Doesn't that sound cool? Well, yeah. It's just having people pray 365 days a year. We'll have a prayer list to sign up. People can pray for the church, the community, the body of Christ. Pray for revival. Pray for the lost. Uh, every day, all year long, Sign up. We'll be a church of prayer. Amen. Amen. All right, we're gonna close. I'm gonna invite the prayer team up. I went to a prayer and worship meeting on Monday night last week. It was fantastic. It was noisy. Two hours of worship and prayer and different things and I mean it was really, really something. I enjoy that sort of thing. And when I was there, I thought to myself, if somebody walked in here, because I mean, it was, it was full on. You know what I'm saying? Like it was full on. There was no like, be like, I wonder if this is going to be any. good, you know, it wasn't, there was none of that. Everyone was just loving Jesus with all of what they had. And I thought to myself, if somebody wandered in here, And they'd never been in a place like this. They'd feel something they have never felt in their life. Because they'd be walking into the power and the presence of God. That, to me, is revival. So we saw a revival meeting on Monday night. And I think Cloquet, Minnesota, could use some revival. And so how do you get revival? I heard a teaching on revival. I thought it was fantastic. I'm going to tell you that because there is a formula for revival that will work every time. Pastor Mike, you're not a... Sub- yes, there's a formula for revival that will work every time. Here's the formula. This revival preacher, he said, here's what I want you guys to do. He's talking to the congregation. He says, go home, get a piece of chalk or some sort of writing utensil. Find an a isolated place like in your... In your room or in a closet or something, and draw a circle on the floor, floor around your feet and stay in that circle until revival breaks out in that circle. And once revival breaks out in that circle, then let's come together and we'll have revival. Because revival doesn't start with pointing the finger at somebody else and saying they should, revival starts when we draw into the presence of God and we get that boost and we connect and then there's an overflow and other people can grab onto that. Let's look at our hearts this morning and let's try to get it to hit us. Then we can believe God for great and mighty things. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace and mercy. I thank you, Lord, for all the wonderful uh, times of revival, like what we read about here in the book of Acts, and all the different historical revivals, and all the many revivals that don't get much press. Lord, thank you for all of those. Praise be to your name. I feel like something good's going to happen in our community. Lord, but we know it starts in our own hearts. It starts with, uh, with us. It starts with individually, each one of us. Lord, let us have revival in our hearts. Let us have revival in our midst. And Lord, let people be able to come in here and feel your power and your presence that you are here. You are here to do miraculous things. You are here to bring the dead to life. You are here to give eternal life. You are here. Lord, to bring healing and deliverance and freedom. Lord, let us grab hold of it individually that we may come together and kindle a fire that will reach those who need you. So Lord, encourage us. Help us to grab hold of that. Help us to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. You can come on down for personal prayer. Prayer teams are open. Come on down, get prayer. Otherwise, you're dismissed. Say hi to somebody you don't know and encourage them in the Lord this morning.